I'd say the number one thing that keeps people from living a generous life, if I could sum it up in one word, is fear. Um, people are afraid of what if the economy changes, what if my job changes, what if I need the money, what if, what if I don't have enough. And so one of the wealthiest countries in the world, probably the wealthiest country in the world, also has a lot of financial hoarders uh, in it. We are so rich just because we all have a roof over our heads and we all have food on our tables and we all have a car to drive. Um, if you just have a car, you're like in the top 10% of the world. We can always justify uh, reasons to not give. Justification and fear are two very, very powerful emotions and feelings. And so that trust needs to be bigger than the fear and justification and that can be a pretty scary jump um, there's an old proverb that says jump and the net will appear and so that's that's really in some cases what we need to do with our faith when you can go from that place of of fear to that place of trust you're able to be more generous statistically you know two to four percent of Americans give and, and of those that give we're given a very small percentage of our of our income now I understand that there are needs that come up um, we have a home we have four kids um, with four kids with children just in general you know that things pile up that medical starts to happen that um, they need new clothes that um, schools around the corner but the bigger question that I always ask families is if God were to be here today having this conversation with your finances, would you be excited to tell them how you've been managing your resources or would you be embarrassed? And I think if, if you're like me, I've been embarrassed many of times, what can we be doing different to be generous? Um, are, you, are you in God's Word? Are you really reading and listening um, to what He is telling us on how to be generous? You know, the question does arise, God doesn't need my money, does he? You know, what, what does God need my money for? And you're right, God doesn't need your money. But what, what God does need is followers. And he calls us to follow him. So when you give your gift to ministry, you're giving your gift to move his kingdom forward. And at the end of the day, you're, you're living out what he's called us to do as Christians. I think if you look at obedience being, Lord, help me use the resources you've given me to serve you, it, it changes your attitude personally. He's not asking for the world from us. He's asking for us to provide a little bit to acknowledge everything that he gives us. There's a lot of good that's being done. And if we all did that, if we all would look at what our current giving is and just stepped it up a percentage or two, you know, where would we be? Where would we be today?
Every time I hear that, I want to do like, my precious, or something like that, right? Anyways, good morning, family. Uh, let's begin our time in prayer. My name is Ryan. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'm the site pastor down in Jackson, but it's an honor to be up here with you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for your grace to us, evidenced in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we just had the opportunity to spend time with family and friends, in a sense, feasting and, and relaxing. And uh, in a sense, it's a picture of the eternal feast that those of us who have placed our faith in your son, Jesus Christ, will one day experience. And Father, we pray that that, that truth, that that eternal truth would relay and would spill over into our day-to-day, everyday lives. And we pray that even in the topic of our stuff, our possessions, our money, as we talk about that today. May our hearts be stirred for your son, Jesus, we pray by your spirit. Amen. So uh, I want to start with a joke, and I'm going to tell you that this joke is terrible theology, and what that means is that it's not true, but it's still funny, okay? So a woman arrived at the gates of heaven, and while she was talking to St. Peter and waiting for him to greet her, she sneaked through the gates. She saw a beautiful banquet table, and sitting all around her were parents and all the other people she had loved who had passed before her. They saw her, and they began calling to her, Hello! How are you? We've been waiting for you. So good to see you. When St. Peter came by, the woman said to him, this is such a wonderful place. How do I get in? Well, St. Peter said, you have to spell a word. Which word? The woman asked. Love. Well, the woman correctly spelled love and St. Peter welcomed her into heaven. About a year later, St. Peter came to the woman and asked her to watch the gates of heaven for him that day. He had some other things he had to do. While the woman was guarding the gates of heaven, her husband arrived. I'm surprised to see you, the woman said. How have you been? Similar greeting notice. Oh, I've been doing pretty well since you died. I married the beautiful young nurse who took care of you while you were ill. And then I won the multi-state lottery. I sold the little house that you and I lived in and, and live in a mansion up until this point. And my wife and I traveled around the world, and we recently were on vacation in Cancun, and I went water skiing today. I fell and hit my head, and here I am. What a bummer. How do I get in? Well, you have to spell a word, she said. He replies, what's the word? She says, Czechoslovakia. (laughs) This morning... This morning, we're going to conclude our series, Lord of the Things, where we're looking at our attitude and our perspective towards our stuff, towards our possessions, our wealth, our resources. And we're going to look at a passage that all of these St. Peter jokes allude to. And what they all allude to is this kind of this scene of judgment where one day Jesus will return and judge how we steward in our lives, either for ourselves or for him and his kingdom. So what I'm going to have you do is turn to page, uh, well, it's going to be up on here. We're going to turn to Luke 19. Luke 19, that's page 743 in the Bibles that are under your chair. Otherwise, find Luke 19 with me. Luke 19, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 27. 11 through 27. Verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. 
So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent to the delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and he returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who didn't want me to be king over them, Bring them here and kill them in front of me. What's all this mean? What's all this mean? The preceding setting before the passage that we just read is the popular story of Zacchaeus. Right? Zacchaeus is this Jewish tax collector who is basically robbing his own people. He has this encounter with Jesus where he places his faith, his trust in Jesus, says as a result of that, I'm going to give back half or sell give half of what i own to the poor and anyone i've wronged i'll give it back times four that didn't earn him relationship with jesus that was just a show a symbol a display of his newfound relationship with jesus in our immediate setting verses 11 through 13 set the stage for this parable and he's trying to use a parable to display and convey a spiritual truth it says that jesus was near jerusalem and and the people thought that the kingdom of god was going to appear at once here's what this means the people thought that jesus was going to inaugurate or start his eternal kingdom where they would politically be freed from roman rule This is key, because this is the setting. This is the setting of why the rest of the parable makes sense. I mean, he was doing things no one had ever done. He was teaching with an authority that they had never heard before. So they're like, this is it. We're going to be freed politically from Roman rule. And so verses 12 to 13 start to tell the story. And here's the characters in our story. I'm going to put these up here, and then we're going to come back and fill in the blanks later. We have a man of noble birth. MNB, not men in black, you know, that movie reference, but MNB. He's got a man of noble birth, and he was going to go to a distant country, right? Where he would be appointed king. And if you look at the language of this appointed king, this is important because it means that he can't do it himself. Someone has to give him the authority, the power to be king. He was going to be appointed king, and then he was going to return again. That's character number one. We also have the servants who he gives ten, one mina each, says put it to work until I come back. And we also have the subjects. We have the man of noble birth. We have the servants. They're given a mina. Notice the subjects aren't. And we have the subjects. 
Look at this with me. This is brilliant what Jesus is doing. Look at this quote with me. If you could put that quote up there for me. There is a commonly known historical parallel to this story. Both Herod the Great and his son Archelaus had journeyed to Rome to receive the kingdom of Judea from Caesar. In the case of Archelaus, the people of Judea hated him and sent a delegation after him to Rome to tell Caesar that they didn't want this man to rule over them. Augustus compromised by allowing Archelaus to rule, but only with the title ethnarch, on the premise that he would have to earn the title king, which he never did. Archelaus had built a beautiful palace for himself in Jericho where Jesus was speaking, and Jericho was about a six-hour walk, 18 miles from Jerusalem. So when he tells this story, everyone in that local setting and context would have known exactly what Jesus was trying to portray. Note again, he gives the servants, ten of them, one mina. He says, I want you to do business with this mina while I'm gone, and upon returning, we'll talk, basically. Here's what I want to notice, too. There's servants and there's subjects, and there's diff- they're differentiated in this text. There's servants and there's subjects. Only the servants were given one mina. And here's what this is. At the end of verse 13, we're left to wonder what they're going to do with this mina. We're left to wonder how they would respond and what they would do with it. We're, we're not left to wonder so much about the subjects because we, they weren't even given a mina. Why? Because their attitude towards the king. What does the text say their attitude towards the king was? This is a question you can respond to me with. Hate. It says they hated him. And then what does it say next? Not a trick. They didn't want him to be king over them, right? It says he, they hated him. They didn't want him to be king over them. What does this mean? If you were to just read this in any context, we don't want him to be king over us. What would that mean? We won't want to submit to his rule. Right? We don't want to submit to this king's rule. In fact, we hate this king. Verses 15 to 19, we see the man of noble birth was made king, even though they didn't want it, right? And he he comes to get a report on how it's going, on what has happened with the money that he's left left with his servants. And the first servant comes, and what happens? He says, you know, master, you left me with one mina, now I've multiplied it to how much? Ten, right? And the master says, you know, well done, good servant, because you've been trustworthy with this, take charge of ten cities. And we're going to see somehow this is seeming to be Jesus rewarding faithfulness in his kingdom. I'm not going to claim to understand how all that works. All I'm going to claim to understand is that he rewards them. Okay, then you have the next servant who is given one mina, and then he comes back with how many? Five. And it's not said the exact same language, but it's implied almost that Jesus would say, well done, good servant again, because you've been faithful with the one, you take charge of five cities. The conflict of our story is with who? The third servant. So it all builds. You've got the setting, you've got the plot, then you've got the conflict. And the conflict of our story is supposed to be the attitude and the actions of this supposed third servant and i use the word supposed on purpose i'll explain more what i mean 
But he, he comes to the master and he says, Master, here's your one mina. I, I put it in a cloth. I, I laid it away. And I did it because I was afraid of you. I thought you're a hard man. Where basically who harvests where he didn't sow. And because I was afraid of you, I just put it away and left it there. Here's your mina. And the king... The master has some pretty hard things to say to this servant. Look at the text with me. It says that he calls him wicked. And he asks him, why didn't you at least put this mine on deposit in the bank so that when I would return, you could have at least given me the interest that it earned. And then if that's not enough, he turns to the crowd and he says, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who already has 10. And they're like, wait a minute, that's not fair. And he goes on to say, to those, uh, everyone who has will be given more, but to those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And then he ends it by saying, these enemies of mine who didn't want me to be their king, bring them here and execute them in front of me. I mean, if I'm just reading this surface level, I'm like, "This, this sounds harsh. Maybe this third servant is right. Maybe this is a hard king. Maybe. Here's where I want to start to interpret this and fill in some of the blanks. Okay, these servants represent the Jewish religious leaders or the Jewish people at large who, by and large, rejected Jesus as king. That's why I think these these subjects, excuse me, I think I said servants. I think that's who these subjects represent. And see, the reason that they didn't like the man of noble birth, the king, is because they didn't like the kingdom that he was selling. Their, his big K kingdom threatened their small K kingdom. His big L lordship threatened their lowercase lordship. They didn't like his kingdom because it had implications on their lives. They wanted a neat and a tidy faith and kingdom, and his blurred all these lines. They wanted to just be able to show the externals and what they did rather than have a faith that was all about the internals displaying itself in the externals. They wanted a faith that separated themselves from those they didn't want to be around or impacted. He wanted a faith that changed you so you were impacting others. They wanted a faith that gave them power to lord over others. He wanted a faith that empowered us to serve and empower others. They wanted a faith that was for them politically. He wanted a faith that was for all spiritually. They rejected the king because they didn't like the kingdom he was selling. They wanted a kingdom for them. He wanted relationship with him that spread to all. His kingdom was 180 degrees different than theirs. And so whether the Jewish religious leaders, whether the Jewish people at large, or whether in our context, anywhere around the world, for those who reject relationship with Christ, the scriptures talk about allowing people to feel the weight of that decision for all of eternity. Now where this passage says, bring them here, execute them in front of me, I think that's a little bit of exaggerated language to talk about eternity apart from Jesus forever eternity separated from the one true king and here's the deal i know that talking about judgment talking about hell all that kind of stuff i mean you're not going to hear it here on k love but also it's not like pc 
But the scriptures talk about this, and we have to talk about this, because otherwise we think one of two things. We think that people are going to spend eternity with God who have rejected them for their whole life, which doesn't make sense, or it's unfair that God would separate himself from all eternity. Here's the deal. Why would Christ force, why would Christ force, if we want to affirm free will, free choice, why would Christ force people to spend eternity with him who wanted nothing to do with him their entire lives? Why would Christ force people to spend eternity in his kingdom when their whole life was about their kingdom? There's a quote from C.S. Lewis I want to look at here. If a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. If the happiness of a creature lies in self-surrender, no one can make that surrender but himself. Though many can help him to make it, and he may refuse. I would pay any price to say truthfully, all will be saved, but my reason retorts, without their will or with it. If I say without their will, I at once perceive a contradiction. How can the supreme act of self-surrender be involuntary? If I say with their will, my reason replies, how, if they will not get in? See, we want to affirm free choice, but then we also want to affirm that those who choose to reject God are going to spend eternity with him, and it's a logical impossibility. It doesn't make sense if we take the emotions out of it. And I think this is because we want to affirm that God is loving, which he is. We'll talk about that as we go. But we aren't so readily affirming that he's also perfectly holy and perfectly just and has to judge sin. He has to judge sin. Here's what I want to focus on, though. That was just for free. Here's what I want to focus on. I want to focus on the third servant because the supposed servant, because I think that's what this text is leading. And the difference is, I don't know if there's so much different between this third servant and the subjects. The difference is these guys outright reject the king. But I wonder if through the actions, if we wonder if the third servant did the same. He's entrusted by the king with one mind and he's told to put it to work until he returns. And that means to do business with it, to be faithful with it, to be reliable with it, to be trustworthy with it until he returns. But by his actions, I wonder if it shows, did this third servant ever truly know his king? Did he ever truly know his king? I think this parable is left to make us feel a healthy tension between two things that the scriptures talk about. The scriptures are replete. There's an abundance that all throughout the scriptures, the only thing that, uh, there's nothing that we can do that can earn God's favor. There's no work that we can do that garners his favor. There's nothing we can do that can allow him to accept us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace we have been saved through faith. This is a gift of God, not by works that no one may boast. That is clear. If you hang out with us from any period of time, you'll hear that, if not on a weekly basis, continually. But if you go to verse 10 in Ephesians, it says, verses 2, 8 through 9 in Ephesians, we're, not, we're saved from works. No works can save us. But verse 10 also says we're saved for works that God prepared in advance. He's got responsibility for us to do. And when we understand the great sacrifice and generosity of our king in stewarding his very life for us, it changes us. We can't be the same. We can't not show that in our lives as his followers. See, and I wonder if this third servant ever knew the king. I think that's what it's supposed to allow us to examine because his life didn't show it. His life didn't show it. I mean, 
Look at that. He says that this master is harsh. He says he's afraid of the master. But there's other scripture that says perfect love casts out all fear. See, family, I think this should give us great reason to pause and examine our lives. And please hear my heart. This isn't like scare tactic or whatever. That's not who any of us are. But it should give us reason to examine our lives and say, do we know our king? Could it be possible that even in a gathering like this or Kewaskum or Jackson, we have some of us in our family, the spiritual family, Kettlebrook, who are sitting in the seats, and maybe we've grown up with it. Maybe it's been so repetitive. Maybe it's so old hat that we're doing the motions, but we've never come to know the great generosity stewarded to us by the Father in his Son through a life, death, and resurrection for us. You're like, well, how would I know? Look at your life. We've been saved from works, but we've been saved for work. Are you growing in your love for your Lord and Savior and King Jesus Christ? Are you growing in your love for others? If not, could it be that it's just intellectual knowledge that we've come to agree with, but that doesn't impact our lives? I don't know. I'm just raising the question. Just raising the question. Here's what I want to do, too. How I want to apply this this morning is, is different than we usually would. If you, just so we know, the mina, the mina is the gospel in this, I think. They've been entrusted with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even more so how I wonder if that third servant is, is similar to the subjects, too, because the Jewish people were entrusted with the very words of God, the very law of God, and they squandered it. They didn't faithfully and reliably use it to bless others okay but this application for us this morning that i want to make is regarding our finances regarding our stewardship regarding our stuff regarding our gift because if you hang out with us again any length of time you'll hear us apply this to all areas of our life our marriage our parenting the workplace etc but i want to apply it specifically to this and here's why the two biggest competitors to be king in our the affections in our heart that i see in our context are time and i don't have time to go there this morning and money. Those are the two biggest competitors of being king in our heart. It's interesting. I was watching a commercial, and the, the CEO of Target was talking about, and he was talking about people as consumers, right? Consumers this, consumers that. Funny thing, if you read the New Testament, you'll never say to the church of consumers in Ephesus. You'll never read that. To the church of consumers in Rome. He talks about them in terms of family. And so I had someone who's a part of our spiritual family sit down with me the other day. And based on the first two weeks of this series, he's like, Ryan, how much am I supposed to give? Newer in his journey, still trying to figure this out. And so I didn't answer him with a percentage or anything like that. I said, well, first off, the scriptures talk about giving, being cheerful, giving coming from the heart, not being reluctant, not being out of guilt, out of shame, but being an expression, one expression of the generosity of our King Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So I didn't give him a percentage. I said, now what I think you're referring to is where the Old Testament talks about a tithe, and a tithe was 10% of what a person had. I shared what I did, which is above that, and I didn't share that to boast to my friend. I shared that to say, hey, if I'm going to ask you or plead, kind of ask you to do something, i got to do it first. It's called integrity. 
So I shared what we did. And then I said, here's what you do. Get together with your spouse and pray about it and see what God puts on your heart. Because I want God to talk to them rather than me to talk to them. Okay, get together with your spouse, pray about it, see what God puts on your heart. I also shared with my friend that what we currently do and how we currently show the generosity of Christ to us through giving is not what we've always done. We've grown in that over time. Also, I was sitting down with my kids. I want them to learn about the generosity of their king. So this Christmas season, we're going to be talking about Esperanza Viva as an opportunity to show that generosity of the king. I also sat down with them, and World Relief, who we used to partner with through Congo, has an online website where you can get things like blankets. You can get things like rabbits. You can get things like solar systems so that the most vulnerable people in the world will have access to things that generate income that will help them. Now, truth be told, the rabbit's like 12 bucks, right? I was like, rabbits, okay. Solar system, 1000 bucks. So we're going through this, and my kids know that generally I'll call myself frugal. That's a nicer way of saying it. And so Ben's looking at this like, I guess the solar system's out. And I said, no. I said, no, I want you to take this, and I want you to pray about it and see what God says to you, and we're going to come back. Now, what if they come back and say, Dad, we think God wants us to help give a solar system? How do I respond? I'm like, are you sure that's God? Could it be Satan? No, I'm not going to do that, right? Why? Because if I have the means, what is that amount of money compared to the lavished love of the Father shown to me in his son, Jesus Christ? Family, we unashamedly, we want you to be generous. We unashamedly ask you to pray about being generous because this is what family does. This is what family does, and we're family. Think about it like this. Say you had 10 people living in a house, 10 adults, okay? And say out of the 10, basically two bought all the groceries, paid all the bills, did all the cooking, did all the cleaning, did all that. We'd be like, wait a minute, right? Same could be said for a spiritual family. 20% or so shouldn't carry the responsibility of 100, right? It should be shared amongst all. So some of you, what we want you to hear is through the Kettlebrook Community Center and the, the pledges and through general giving and international, you've been more generous than you ever have been at any time in the history of Kettlebrook. And we're so thankful. We are so appreciative. Some of us, maybe we're newer to the family, maybe we've been part of the family for a long time and just haven't gotten to this aspect. Some of our family needs to get in the game and start sharing that responsibility because of the generosity of Jesus shown to us through the Father, by Jesus. We need to get in the game and start being generous too. Now, lest you misunderstand again, not because Ryan says so, but because of the generosity of our king. If we could read this last quote. But how insensible, this is Jonathan Edwards, how insensible and unmoved are most men about the great things of another world. How languid, if you don't know what that means, neither did I, I had to look it up, it means like relaxed, calm. How languid are their affections as to these things? How insensibly they can sit and hear the infinite love of God and giving his dear son to be offered up a sacrifice for the sins of men and of the unparalleled love of the innocent and holy lamb of God manifested in his dying agonies, his bloody sweat, his bitter cries and bleeding heart. They can hear that all this was done for his enemies to redeem them from deserved eternal burnings and to bring 
them to unspeakable and everlasting joys and yet be cold and sensible and regardless? Where are the exercises of our affections proper if not here? Is there anything which Christians can find so worthy of their admiration and love, their desires and hopes, their zeal and joy as those things which are exhibited in the gospel of Jesus Christ? If we stop it before we get to the generosity of Jesus, it's just behavior modification. It's just me imploring you to change behaviors, change habits, things like that. But when we bring it back and recognize the generosity of our king who lived a perfectly submitted life to God the Father, who paid a perfectly sufficient death to cover our sin and who rose in victory over sin and death, when these truths capture our affections, it changes everything, including our attitude towards our stuff our possessions, our money. See, family, through your generosity, we want to equip you to faithfully steward the gospel for Christ in every area of your life so we continue to see people become followers of Jesus who make followers of Jesus. We want to equip you to faithfully steward the gospel of Jesus Christ in your workplace so that you can see others there impacted by the good news. We want to equip you through your generosity to faithfully steward the gospel in your very home where you have little eyes watching 24-7 so that you can point your children to our great and our mighty king. Through your generosity, we want to continue to establish partnerships and friendships with organizations in our community where we can show the love of Jesus Christ, not through lording over them, but through bringing the towel in service. Through your generosity, we want our students to be shown and told about the strength of their king so that they can go into the elementary schools and the middle schools and the high schools and change the spiritual landscape there. Through your generosity, we want to equip you to see people who were formerly the subjects, enemies of God, hated him, didn't want them to be his king, to see their hearts softened. The truth of a great and mighty God who loved them so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. See, Kettlebrook family, through your generosity, we want to see nothing short of the very fabric of our communities change to where we were we not to exist, we'd be greatly missed. We'd be greatly missed. Knowing how our King Jesus first generously lavished his love on us, through his life, death, and resurrection, we can trust him and we can generously give back a portion of what he's so graciously given to us so that our family, that's us, can be equipped to be a family of Christ followers who helps others follow Christ. We pray with me? Father, I know that this is a subject that, you know, in a sense... Religion, politics, they have money that we're not supposed to talk about. I also know that in our context, it's one of the most, if not the most, key competitors who, who seeks to be king in our lives rather than Jesus. So, Father, I pray you would speak to my heart. I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And I pray more than anything that you would affirm the generosity of your son, Jesus, who became poor so that spiritually speaking we might have all the riches of eternity starting right here, right now. And Father, I pray that as we leave this gathering that we would examine our own hearts and we would pray and ask of you 
what would you be saying to us and, and what are we going to do about it? Again, not because a pastor says, but because Jesus himself invites us to get in the game, to be a part of his kingdom in this way so that people might come to know and follow him and help others know and follow him also. And we pray this in the name of our mighty king, Jesus.